is your time allocation and your FTE allocation aligned with achieving your goals? And if it's not, how might you realign so that it's aligned with your goals? You're on the Faculty Factory podcast, and I'm Kim Skorupski, and I'm looking at my friend and colleague, Dr. Jessica Kahn. Good morning, Jessica. Good morning, Kim. Well, Jessica Kahn and I go way back through the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges Group on Faculty Affairs, Research and Program Evaluation Project Development Committee, one of the Research and Project Development Committee, and I, I've always admired Jessica because she's one of these people who is busier than anybody, but also the person who, when you want something done, you go to Jessica because she's so busy. She, it tells you she's a great time manager and she gets things done. Jessica, will you please tell everyone what is your role at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center? Sure. Thank you, Kim. So I serve as Associate Chair of Academic Affairs and Career Development uh, for Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. And also I direct a division of Adolescent and Transition Medicine. Yes. And I also remember working with you for years on our committee at the GFA and Mallory De Palma. I mean, this is another, I don't know if Mallory is still with you, but I loved her. And I just want to give a shout out because a little entree into what we're going to talk about today is good people and good team. And I just remember Mallory being so instrumental in our um, getting the poster evaluations and poster judging process up and running. And she was great. So if she's there, even if she's moved on, please give a Mallory De Palma shout out from me. <laughs> I will. Well, Jessica, you wanted to talk today about 10 strategies for success. So this is important, not only for those of us who've been around and in the game for a while, but those of us who are new to academic medicine and new in our career. So I can't wait to hear what your strategies. Dr. Khan, take it away. Thanks so much, Kim. I am so excited to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So I wanted to talk about 10 strategies for success for junior faculty. And these these may be also relevant for mid-level or more senior faculty as well, but it's geared towards junior faculty. And what I hope is that by the time we're done with this podcast, that our listeners will be able to apply those strategies for um, optimizing academic productivity and navigating the academic health center where they are and also um, building resiliency to achieve their career goals. So the first strategy for success is to, to create an individual development plan and a developmental network plan. So the famed IDP and DNP. Um, And I really think that those are roadmaps for our success as faculty. Um, Having an individual development plan or an IDP, um, it really helps us, it it empowers us to take ownership of our own career development. Um, And when you have an IDP, which includes like your short-term goals, your long-term goals, um, the steps that you might take to achieve those, it helps us to um, increase our self-awareness. It helps us increase our clarity and focus about those goals, and it helps us to prioritize. Um, And in doing so, that um, increases our efficiency and our effectiveness in meeting our career goals and also um, helps to decrease burnout because when we know where we're going and we can prioritize and we can let go of things that 
um, that don't get us where we're going. And that helps to, to decrease our burnout, increase our vitality. Um, having an IDP also, um, I think, helps to increase motivation and confidence and resilience. Um, and also, it's very helpful with communication. So if you have a mentor you're going to, to have a meeting with, or you have a career development committee or a scholarship oversight committee, having that IDP ready and showing it to your um, mentors or your mentoring committee can be a really great way of communicating your goals to them and getting their feedback. When I talk about creating IDPs, I usually talk about five key steps to creating your IDP. Um, and the first step, and um, probably the most important, is defining what career success means for you, right? And also familiarizing yourself with the promotion criteria in your track. Um, once you know what, what career success means for you and then what it means for your institution, i.e. promotion criteria, um, that is very helpful in terms of defining you, defining your short and long-term goals for success and for promotion. And once you've defined those short and long-term goals, um, the next step uh, is to um, carefully think about and analyze your time allocation and your activities. So are, is your time allocation and your FTE allocation aligned with achieving your goals? And if it's not, how might you realign so that it's aligned with your goals? And then the fourth step is um, creating a timeline for achieving your goals um, and thinking about anticipating what resources and skills are needed um, to achieve your goals along that timeline and what barriers you might experience so that you can think about yourself and with your mentors and with your mentoring team, how you might mitigate those barriers. And then finally, once you've created that um, IDP with your goals and you've analyzed that time allocation and you've created a timeline and you've thought about what resources and skills you need and what barriers you might face, that's a time to assemble your network of mentors, right? And your mentors can help you with that time and activity alignment. They can help you attain the resources and skills you need for success, and they can help you mitigate those barriers. And so that takes me to the next um, item, which is a developmental network. So um, a developmental network is similar to a mentoring team, um, but it's a group that provides you with different types of career um, support and different types of psychosocial support as you pursue your career goals and as you try to attain the um, goals in your IDP. Um, and ideally, that developmental network would be comprised of individuals who are both in your institution, outside your institution, focused on the same areas that you're focused on and other areas so that they um, offer a really diverse set of skills and abilities. And um, membership of that developmental network might change depending upon your developmental needs at the time. So you can think about a developmental network like um, kind of like a framework with you like as a circle in the middle and then all of the members of your developmental network um, are surrounding you. Um, and those might be people who provide you with, say, career mentorship or leadership mentorship or research mentorship. They might be um, peer mentors, they might be senior mentors, they might be junior colleagues, right? Um, they might be um, someone who is a mentor on a special project and so on. So um, creating that kind of um, diagram for yourself with you in the middle and then all of the mentors in that developmental network who might be helpful for you to achieve your IDP can be really helpful. And a developmental network plan, um, the advantages of that are that um, it not only provides you with career support, right? So it provides you with 
um, visibility, with um, mentorship, with sponsorship, um, exposure to others within the organization. Um, but it can also provide you with psychosocial support, right? It can help you um, feel affirmed and confirmed and, and supported. Um, it can support your career success, your personal learning. Um, and I think when um, I think when people have this type of developmental network plan, it really helps to improve um, your satisfaction at work and also your um, organizational commitment. Great. Thank you. Number two. So number two is optimizing collaboration, right? So you and I can review a lot of CVs for promotion, and I'm sure that sometimes you see what you consider a red flag. Um, so two red flags that I see on when I'm reviewing a CV is one um, for academic faculty, when I see that they are the lead or the principal investigator or PI on all projects and all of their papers are first author. Um, and so my kind of, when I see that, um, what I advise them is to think about investing some time in strategic planning to develop some peer teams, um, to write their grants, to write their manuscripts, and then try to kind of divide and conquer to increase their productivity and to prevent burnout. Um, and then the second red flag that I see is sometimes I'll see a CV in which the faculty member is involved in many, many projects, sometimes 10 or 20 or more as the sole site PI or sub investigator, and they have no publications. Mm -hmm. So there may be 1% effort on multiple, multiple grants as site PI, but they're not being invited to be on those publications. So um, what I advise those faculty is to be cautious about agreeing to be a site PI or a sub-investigator on a project if that project won't result in tangible benefit to you because often those positions come with a very tiny amount of funding and it always takes longer than the amount of funding that you're given. Huge. And so try to, try to negotiate with that team to have a more meaningful role. Excellent. Number three. <laughs> So number three is to prioritize publishing. You guys are all aware of the publisher parish um, saying. Um, so, but easier said than done, right? Publishing. So uh, when I talk about publishing to junior faculty, um, I mentioned three key principles to them. Um, the first is know the expectations. So know what the expectation of your director is for publications and the expectation for promotion in your, in your track and at your rank. Um, how many, what type. Um, the second key principle is to try to prioritize quality over quantity um, of manuscripts. Um, I don't know of a reappointment promotion and tenure committee that does not um, value quality of publications over quantity. Um, and thirdly, um, plan ahead and block time to write. Um, and I'll speak more to that in a moment, but that's incredibly important. Um, I would say the most common barrier um, to writing is procrastination. We all do it. We all procrastinate writing right. um, for various reasons. Um, but um, I um, got some tips uh, a few years ago from Connie Baldwin, who's a wonderful speaker on um, publication. And I wanted to, um, to talk about some of those. So some tips for fighting procrastination. Um, one is, as I said before, protect that writing time, protect that writing time fiercely. Um, it's so important. If you don't protect it, other things will take, take over and, and, and you'll prioritize them. Setting some 
like very concrete time limited goals and deadlines and giving yourself positive reinforcement, rewarding yourself for meeting those is really helpful. Creating a writing support system. And this is something that I have learned from you, Kim, right? <laughs> from your wonderful book about writing accountability groups. And, um, you know, we invited you to give a seminar at our institution on WAGs. Um, and at, we gave everyone a copy of WAG Your Work. Um, and we've started a lot of those groups and they have been incredibly helpful. So creating that writing support system, whether it's a WAG or whether you're, you, you know, you just find a, a colleague to write with. Um, can really help you fight procrastination. You can get each other motivated. Um, another tip is just to try to maximize the fun and minimize the punishment of writing. So, um, you know, uh, find a, a time and a place to write that's enjoyable for you. Maybe you get some music going. Make sure you're comfortable. You're not too cold. You're not too hot. You have drinks. You have snacks. Um, you take breaks. Um, you don't expect yourself to write for three hours straight, which is really for all of us, you know, we would consider that a punishment and we would never want to do that again. So, um, you know, optimizing fun, minimizing punishment. Um, and then another tip is like, is just to curb our natural perfectionistic urges. We want everything to be perfect. We want every sentence to be perfect and right. it doesn't have to be perfect to get done. You just want to get the writing on the paper. You can always go back and revise and revise um, later on. Um, and you'll have so much more of a sense of accomplishment if you just, you know, get it written. Um, and the other thing that um, Connie Baldwin talks about is um, tips for maximizing your writing productivity. Um, and we talked about a couple of those. So developing those like regular writing habits during what is your prime time um, and controlling your writing environment. So for me, I am, um, I focus best in the morning and I'm most highly caffeinated in the morning. Mm -hmm. So that's a time I block for writing. For me in the afternoon, that's kind of my low energy point in the afternoon, like three or 4 p.m. And I am an extrovert. So people give me energy. So I schedule all my meetings in the afternoon because I know that that people will you know, generate energy, <laughs> but my writing has to be in the morning, you know, like I'm about, I'm, you know, useless in the afternoon. So think about like, what's your prime time for writing? Yeah. Um, one tip that I um, have learned that I always use is to try to end a writing session at a new starting point. So when you get to the end of your writing session, think about what's the next paragraph you're going to write What's the, what's the next point you're going to address and jot that down so that because when you come back to writing again, your brain is cold and can't remember that. And that just helps you just dive right back in. The only other tip I would mention today is um, revising from large scale to small scale. So starting with an outline, sending that out to your um, co-authors and getting their feedback on it before you dive in. And then really working on the big picture, like um, components of the paper, like what is the structure of your paragraph going to look like? What's your transition going to be? What examples are you going to use? How are you going to transition to the next before you go in and start wordsmithing word by word by word? Because what happens is if you if you spend an hour wordsmithing a paragraph and then one of your co-authors says, oh, I don't like that paragraph and cuts it. You've just wasted an hour wordsmithing. Oh, so, so good. about like revising large to small scale can be really Love helpful. It. Great. Number four, Dr. Khan. So number four is to market yourself. So I think all of us learn as we 
move um, up in institutions and as we uh, take on leadership positions that um, doing great work and working really hard is often not good enough to achieve our goals, whether those are career goals or leadership goals, and that um, building relationships and networking and marketing oneself and promoting oneself in whatever way is comfortable for us is really key um, to standing out from the crowd. Um, so uh, there are a number of things that get in the way of marketing yourself and self-promotion. And I would say this is um, especially true, not exclusively true for women, is um, first of all, cultural norms, you know, that we've all been socialized to um, adhere to, you know, not to promote ourselves. Um, lack of self-confidence is a reason we don't um, promote ourselves. And then not knowing our strengths, like not knowing our authentic self and what we what our strengths are and what we bring to the table. So if we're going to market ourselves, we really need to start with confidence in our own abilities, knowledge of our abilities and strengths, confidence in those, um, and like a visualization of ourselves as a confident leader. Um, so some of the, so some tips for marketing yourself are, um, again, knowing your strengths, your capabilities, your accomplishments, and then also, once you know those, practice articulating those um, in the way that's most comfortable for you. Um, the second marketing tip I would um, propose is doing the best you can to take credit when people um, give you credit for accomplishing something, right? So, of course, it's wonderful and appropriate to, to acknowledge and praise your team and your boss, um, but um, try to accept those compliments gracefully and don't minimize them, right? So I know we've all done this ourselves and we've, we've witnessed others saying when they are um, given credit or praised for accomplishing something, oh, I was just lucky, things just worked out for me, right? But graceful thank you. Thank you. Boom. Oh, just a thank you, a simple thank you. It's amazing how hard it is to just say thank you. So practice that. Um, and the third marketing tip um, I would propose is try really hard not to be self-deprecating. Again, particularly true for women, but true of many of us. Um, uh, we, we know people are being, we or others are being self-deprecating when we hear things like, um, this might be a dumb question, but, or I don't really know much about this, or I'm not really an expert on this, but. So try really hard, though it's difficult to eliminate those from your language. That really helps you to project confidence and, and market yourself. Oh, Jessica, I'm, um, you're, you're helping me to re remember the article that came out in 2019 in academic medicine, Borman Shope et al., knowing your personal brand, what academics can learn from marketing 101. So that is just a perfect, um, I love, that's so important. We don't think about that in academic medicine, marketing and branding ourselves, but that Borman Shope et al., academic medicine, all about personal branding and marketing. Thank you, Jessica. Number five. So number five is um, investing time in networking. We all need to remember that opportunities present themselves to those of us who are visible. <laughs> we often think if we just, you know, again, put our heads down, work really hard, people will notice us and give us opportunities. But um, opportunities really um, come to the prepared. And so um, 
I think a, a tip I'd have is to analyze your network, who you're, who's in your network, who are you interacting with regularly, um, and then who do you need to add to your network to achieve those goals? You know, again, going back to your IDP. So, um, you know, for example, who can mentor you? Who needs to be in your mentor mentoring network? Um, who can sponsor you, right? Who can identify you for opportunities? Um, who has access to resources that you might need? Um, and then when you network to um, try to be authentic and um, communicate effectively, warmly, um, follow through, um, and always try when you're networking to speak um, positively of others. Um, I think, you know, many of us um, are drawn to um, social media platforms for our networking, like LinkedIn and Facebook and, and Twitter and so on. But there's just, I think there's just nothing like um, that personal one-on-one -on -one. Um, networking, um, whether that be virtual or whether that be in person, um, but just setting up a time to meet with someone, have a cup of coffee with them, um, get to know them. Um, the investment, investing time in networking can really pay, you know, huge dividends. Absolutely. I love it. I, I, and you and I are both extroverts. So that's especially important um, to know yourself and know what brings you energy, as you pointed out earlier. If, if you like people and enjoy being pe around people and it does bring you energy, build it into the calendar. So great advice. Number six, please, Dr. Jessica Kahn. So now my number six tip is build your skills in managing up, right? So um, think about the concept that um, effective leadership is really not positional, um, or based on a title, but it's really relational, right? So um, it's about influence. It's not about um, power. And what managing up means is um, effectively managing the relationship with those you report to, with your boss or other senior leaders, and you know, going above and beyond the tasks that are assigned to you so that you can enhance the work of your director or your boss. Um, and that positions you as a, um, as a valuable asset, as an indispensable asset to your manager and the organization, and it can really bring opportunities and career advancement. So, so how do you manage up? I think a, a key principle is um, empathic understanding. Is um, so. What I mean by that, it's by it's trying to understand where your boss is coming from. So, viewing issues from two levels up. We often think we often view issues from one level up, our own director or boss. But think about who does your boss report to? What do they want from your boss? Um, what are your boss's incentives? Um, what are their goals, you know, at a personal level, an institutional level? What are their beliefs? What drives them? How do they process information? How do they make decisions? Think about what's the truth that your boss needs to know, right? You're on the front lines. You have valuable, indispensable information. Um, so important to think about what they need to know. Um, and then learn to anticipate your boss's needs, right? Like what makes her tick? What ticks her off? Um, what's her work style, her communication style, her priorities, that kind of thing. Some helpful strategies for managing up once you've thought about, uh, you know, what the priorities and incentives of your boss are, are one is communicate really simply and clearly. Um, it is, uh, I think we, we never, we, we, it's hard for us to understand just how busy some of our bosses are, right? So um, keeping, for example, any communication, especially email, short, straightforward, infrequent, avoiding those blind copies and um, CCs, that kind of thing. 
acknowledging your your boss's value and importance in public, um, you know, um, acknowledging their contributions. When you need to disagree with your boss, disagreeing in a very productive and respectful way, trying to um, link that disagreement to common goals. And if we do have to disagree, providing um, suggestions and a range of alternative options. And then just being patient because um, building understanding, reciprocal understanding with your boss and building trust just takes time and experience. Um, but with time, you will you will develop that, um, that experience. Um, yeah. I love that. I've never thought about the two levels up. So that is so important. I've always thought about what will make my boss look good and what does she need to do in her job? But I've never thought two levels up. That's so important, especially when we're early in our career, thinking about when we're usually lower um, in the in the career ladder trajectory and lower in the food chain, if you will. So yeah, you have to think up, 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 up. So two levels up is a really good strategy. And I love the ticks. Know your boss's ticks, what makes him or her tick and what ticks him or her off. I love the ticks. I'm going to remember that. So number seven, this might strike fear into some of the listeners, but you have to engage effectively in organizational politics. So we don't like politics when we're in academic um, science or academic medicine, but um, but we, it's just inevitable, especially the higher up that we move in an organization. So, so what is organizational politics? So it's this um, confluence of... Um, influence and power and culture of an organization that drives the decisions that get made and how things get done. And sometimes that's through organized channels and sometimes that's through non-organized channels. The organized channels are the ones that are easier to identify, but the non-organized channels are the ones that more, are more difficult. So how do we engage effectively in an organization's politics? Um, I have a few suggested strategies. Um, one is be a great listener, right? Listen before contributing, seek to understand before being understood. It's, it's you know, in, the, in that way, you'll get to know those unofficial um, pathways by which decisions get made. Um, ask similar to that, ask a lot of questions, um, explore and think about what's the stake that everybody at the table has in every outcome. Um, and I always try, um, and I'm not always successful in doing this, but I always try to follow this advice, which is that it's better to ask the right question than to have the right answer. Another way to engage in the organization's po uh, politics is um, follow the people who have risen quickly in the organization, you know, the fast trackers and think about, you know, how they, how they succeeded. Um, really important is investing in relationships, right? Relationships are so, so important. And when we're a junior faculty member, again, we're like really focused on put, getting, putting our heads down and getting our work done. But investing in relationships helps you build trust um, and helps you to be, to learn to be someone who can connect other people. Um, another thing that's really important is understanding that everybody matters. This is something that um, I think is really important as you are um, meeting with senior leaders or maybe you're interviewing for a position in your organization is that everybody matters, including the administrative assistant, 
who makes the appointment, right? You can be sure that um, a leader is going to go to the administrative assistant and say, how did that individual treat you? Um, Were they respectful? Were they inclusive? Or if you didn't treat that person well, you can be sure they will report on that. So um, another strategy for engaging effectively with um, an organization is to bring valuable big ideas to the table. Like in every organization, ideas are the currency, right? So valuable, innovative ideas are are helpful. Um, Another thing that I've um, learned over the years is in in terms of engaging with organizational politics, it's always best to take the high ground and try to uphold everybody's dignity, to try really hard to engage in gossip. You know, think about adding water, not fuel to a fire um, and staying neutral if possible. And that includes like being aware of your communication style, your nonverbals. You don't want, you know, make sure that if you have an eye roll that it's internal, not external, right? Oh no, put on that verbal filter. (laughs) Um, And finally, if you are upset about something that's occurred and you will be like, that's just inevitable. Take that deep breath, sleep on it. Um, if you're tempted to write an email with emotional content, go for it. Just write it to yourself. Just send it to yourself and look at it the next day. I can guarantee you, you will not send that email, right? Um, and you might also want to use some of your, um, you know, your mentors to think about how to respond to a situation and sort of process it with them, but to try really hard not to, you know, react in the moment. So smart. I love the adding water, not fuel to a fire. Very good reminder. Jessica, number eight. All right. So um, number eight is to try to think and act strategically, right? So um, getting your head above the water, taking like the 10,000 foot view. Um, So thinking strategically is um, having the ability to to think about what, 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 is the reality now and what could be um, and and really make choices that lead to your desired outcomes Um, and successful strategic planning, like whether as as an individual or um, with your team, um, what that means, what that a successful strategic plan describes, not just like what you choose to do, what you're planning to do, but also what you're planning not to do, right? It, It shouldn't include all priorities. And the the goal really is, is focus. Um, and, and with strategic planning, less is more. Um, and it's very action oriented and has, um, you know, clear ownership, clear actions and clear metrics. So, um, I think thinking strategically is really important for us in this era of high rates of burnout, especially because a strategic, um, plan can really help you figure out what, if, if you know exactly what you're going for and what your goals are, then it becomes so much easier to say no to the things that are not going to get you there. So it helps you to prioritize and, and helps to, to prevent burnout. Absolutely. Number nine, Jessica. So nine is um, to um, try to, it's around time management, mm. to try to control your work and not let your work control you. Um, this is one of those strategies that's easier said than done, right? Um, but we're always uh, trying to uh, take control of our time. But to try to um, think about how we can be in control and a master of our schedule and not a victim of our schedule, right? Um, so one of the strategies is to um, learn um, how you work best. And I mentioned this a little bit before. So, you know, for me, um, uh 
um, tasks that require focus and concentration I um, do in the morning. Um, and then I schedule my meetings in the afternoon. Um, but um, everyone needs to figure out um, for themselves um, when and, and how they work best. Consciously prioritize like what you want to devote energy to. Um, and then I would say, um, although it seems counterintuitive, try really, really hard to take all those vacation days, um, you know, try as, as hard as you can to um, block off time, evenings and weekends for rejuvenation. And, um, you know, maybe you want to just block random times for rejuvenation on your, on your calendar. Um, I had um, a research nurse who worked with me once and um, every year she would take her birthday and her husband's birthday off and they would just go off on that random day. It wasn't a holiday. It wasn't a vacation. It was just a day in the middle of the week. If their birthday fell on a weekend, they would take a weekday and just block off that random day. Um, And there's some, a concept that I've really been drawn to is um, these these three strategic practices to help take control of your time. And they are called um, strategic abandonment, strategic delegation, and strategic alignment. (laughs) So strategic abandonment is thinking about what activities that you're doing yourself that can be um, transitioned, that can be um, dropped, or that can be streamlined, you know, that you can do more efficiently. Um, Strategic delegation is thinking about um, what what that you're doing could be an opportunity, a developmental opportunity for someone else that you can delegate to them, right? Um, and this can be just a wonderful opportunity for people who um, who um, report to you or or um, colleagues or learners. And strategic alignment is um, aligning different activities. Um, this is the concept of like killing more birds with one stone. Um, how can you align activities? How can you align your, for example, research and educational and um, clinical activities, for example? Um, so what are your passions and, and how can you try to align those as best as possible? Um, another strategy for taking control of your time is taking advantage of resources. I think, again, we have our heads down. We're not like looking around for what are the policies and what are the benefits in our organizations or our communities um, that can help us um, with time management. So um, programs and policies like, I don't know if it's extension of time to tenure, if you um, have um, family responsibilities um, or, you know, emergency child care. Um, what can you outsource, you know, laundry or house cleaning or meal preparation or gift, gift buying? Um, and then finally, like being aware of unconscious barriers to using those resources. I think sometimes we're reluctant to use existing resources because we don't want to signal that we're not committed um, and we don't want to um, impact our careers. Um, but it's not only important for our own vitality um, to take advantage of those resources, but also it's a wonderful example for others when we take advantage of those resources. It can have a real um, um, ripple effect on others um, when you serve as an example for using those types of resources. Jessica, so, so thoughtful. Um, you're, you're making me think about what something you said earlier, following the fast trackers, because I can imagine some faculty members hearing this I love these three strategic abandonment, delegation, alignment. I've not heard about this, but I like that concept as well. I imagine some faculty members listening to this going, well, that sounds great in theory, but how do I do it? So you're telling me how to abandon, delegate, and align, but I don't even know how to do it. 
But like earlier, you said, follow the fast trackers. So I'm thinking one shortcut is find people who, from your perspective, are doing this well and, and have a handle on delegating and abandoning and aligning and just simply buying them a cup of coffee, real or virtual, and say, can you help me think about aligning and just help me think about it, like almost coaching. And that would be a way, it's not on you or on us necessarily to figure everything out. We have that developmental network and all our, our peers. And so I, I love that. And I think that's another, you know, an option, as you said earlier, well, find those fast trackers, find the people who do it and model them, right? Absolutely. Oh my gosh, Dr. Jessica Khan, we're on number 10 already. All right. So number 10 is the holy grail, which is preventing burnout, right? Right. <laughs> so we all know, you know, burnout is real. The prevalence is increasing. It has really serious consequences. The COVID pandemic has not been our friend in terms of burnout, um, right? So, um, so many wonderful pieces written about um, burnout and vitality. Um, if there's one author I'd really recommend that people read, it's Tate Shanefelt. Um, he has um, sort of a classic paper in um, Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2016, in which he outlines these key drivers of burnout and vitality. Um, he has this um, wonderful honeycomb with the drivers, um, the driver dimensions that include, for example, our workload and our job demands, our ability to be efficient, our organizational culture, um, our finding meaning in work, that kind of thing. And when they are optimized, that drives vitality. And when those are not optimized, that drives burnout. So I think we um, doing a little bit of um, reading and, and thinking about what are those driver dimensions for ourselves can be really helpful. Um, to address some of those drivers, we really need, of course, um, divisional, departmental, institutional change, but we can focus on our locus and think about, of all of those key driver dimensions, what are the ones that are within our control and within our locus um, that we can impact? Um, and I just wanted to touch on one of those, which is um, building resilience um, in ourselves to um, manage all of the stressors um, in our lives. And I want to um, uh, touch upon the work of um, our friends, Michael Wiederman and Bob Best, who wrote a wonderful article about building resilience. Um, and they talk about five pillars to, resist, to, to building resilience, which I think are really important. Um, one is self-awareness, right? Um, so recognizing our strengths and weaknesses, recognizing our biases, recognizing our personal personality traits and how we react to stress. What are our thought patterns when things are um, not going our way? Um, and just being aware of those can um, be phenomenally helpful in building our resilience. Um, another strategy for building resilience is knowing our why, um, our purpose, right? And there has been some research, as some of our listeners probably are aware, that if you um, spend at least 20% of your time in your area of passion, that can significantly reduce burnout. You know, when we have like a long-term time horizon that we're thinking towards that can, and we know what our passion is and we're aligning our passion with our purpose, that can really help us build resilience. Um, the third uh, pillar of building resilience is self-care. 
again, we all know this, but it's easier said than done, right? Stress management, diet, sleep, exercise, um, relaxation practices. Um, the fourth pillar is relationships, having that social support. I think when we're stressed, sometimes we, some of us will reach out to others for support and some of us will retreat, you know, within, but making sure we have those social supports in place is critical. The other piece of um, re the relationship pillar is learning strategies for conflict resolution. Um, if we are, the, you know, conflicts are inevitable in the workplace and in our personal lives. And if we have really effective strategies to resolve conflict, that can be um, a tr real, a, a, an effective driver of, of vitality and prevent burnout. Um, and then finally, um, just, you know, mindfulness strategies, meditation, mindfulness. Mindfulness is that, you know, being aware of our present experience without like, chatter, mental commentary going on in our heads and um, mindfulness-based practice can be incredibly uh, helpful. Um, so those are five um, pillars to building um, resilience. And I think that, um, you know, doing some individual reading in this area around um, burnout and vitality can be really helpful to, again, think about what is our What's our locus? What can we control? Um, and then how, how can we make an impact in those, in those areas? Dr. Jessica Kahn, and this is why you have the reputation you have earned. What careful and thoughtful preparation for this episode. Only you. Wow, this is really, really deep and broad and so important. And I know listeners will be replaying this over and over again. This is important, just as I suspected, across along the whole continuum, because we all need these reminders. There's so many points here that um, I need to work on, that I can, I can grow in so many areas here. And we can certainly help our early career faculty members um, grow and develop in these areas too. So folks, you've been learning a lot from Dr. Jessica Kahn, the 10 strategies for junior faculty success and all of our success. And you can find Dr. Khan at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, where she's doing great work, obviously, and a lot of it. And are you, are you still even a, the president of your professional society on top of everything else? Oh, I'm the immediate past president oh. of the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine. It has been such a joy to be with you again. Um, you're doing such important work. We love the Faculty Factory podcast. And uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Well, no, thank you. And everybody, thank you for being a part of this community. We are a community. We are a family. So be a part of the family. Suggest someone to be on the podcast, and that could be you. Just shoot me an email, facultyfactorykim at gmail.com. That's facultyfactorykim at gmail.com. Thank you, Jessica. I really, really appreciate you. Thanks. You too, Kim. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.